This episode of All My Friends Are In Barbands was recorded on the land of the Tharawal and the Wurundjeri people, respectively. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hi there, it's David James Young, back for another week of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands. This week's guest is Greta Ray, a Melbourne-based singer-songwriter who uh, kind of blew up with her song Drive about five years ago. You know how people do the whole, oh, they burst onto the scene. Well, she pretty much did that. Usually when people say that, they are blowing smoke out their asses, but uh, no one had heard of this kid prior to this song kind of blowing up on Triple J. And after that, it was just a continuous upward momentum. She's toured with the likes of previous guests of the show, Gang of Youths, as well as acts like Paul Kelly and Leanne LaHarvis and Mumford and & Sons. And finally, this year, she is releasing her debut studio album called Begin to Look Around. Today, she released two new singles that are going to be on that record, Cherish and The Brink. She also did Like a Version today, where she performed a song by the aforementioned Gang of Youths. And this weekend, she'll be part of the Virtual Splendor XR Festival, which I will be quote-unquote attending. Still not quite sure how to uh, phrase that, but uh, I I guess we'll just work with what we're given, right? Anyway, Greta was really lovely to speak to. Honestly, just a very charming and very thoughtful person, and I really appreciate her taking the time to speak to me. So, a big thank you to her and to Mariam Dib over at Universal EMI for helping to set this one up. So, let's get into it. This is episode 183 of All My Friends Are in Bar Bands with Greta Ray. My house is a hotel room in the inner city of a place I don't know well, but I'm shown the road. To try to tame the vertigo Morning is a runway Speed 30,000 feet I'm living sky high On to the next thing And so it goes I entertain rest But I don't When you think like you dream Nothing's an impossibility Hi everyone, I'm David James Young And all my friends are in bar bands Today I would like to introduce you to my friend Greta Ray Hello Hello, how are you? I'm doing well, how are you doing? I mean... As, as well as one can do in this situation. Uh, so, Greta is in Melbourne, and I am in Wollongong, and ironically, the tables have very much turned from the, from 2020 in this respect, as uh, everything seems to slowly starting to be happening again in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And and where I am, things are very much not. So, like, uh, have you had a chance to kind of get out amongst it since Melbourne kind of opened up again? I mean, I have a little bit, but not too much. I think the thing that's interesting, I mean, we were in lockdown for the fourth time not too long ago. And yeah. because of how quickly things tend to shut down here, which is good for everyone's safety, but it does mean that it makes people feel like there's a real sense. I mean, there is like a real sense of fragility with like everything that we do. Yeah. So even when there was outbreaks in like 
all of the other states and Melbourne was totally fine. We've now been through it enough times that I had the thought process of like, maybe I won't go to the gym because like, when's it going to like, when's the next case going to be? And like, what if this is going to be an exposure site soon? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. things have in the past, like totally kind of exploded here really fast. But so I think it just means that people are hesitant to get out and be amongst it. But I think maybe now, I think maybe the trust is like slowly starting to come back. Yeah. So I begin these by tracing back the initial interest in music specifically where it changed over from being something that maybe you were watching on TV, listening to on the radio, etc. to kind of switching into this is what I want to do. I want to sing. I want to make music. I want to play an instrument, all that sort of stuff. Can you tell me how music Mm. factored into your childhood and your upbringing? And if there was a kind of switch on moment for you? Yeah, I feel like it was less of a switch on moment and more, this might sound strange, but it was probably more of like an inevitability just right. because of how deeply immersed in music I was my whole childhood. Yeah. So I was not only kind of surrounded by family friends that were, you know, local singer songwriters, I had those people in my circles. And so I was going to see them play from when I was really little, but you know, my mom is a very avid music listener, so I was gr- immersed in, like, great records that would play around the house when I was a kid, and I had a very musical extended family on my dad's side. So the music thing was, like, kind of inescapable for me as a kid. So thankfully, I, I totally loved it. And I think just the point where I knew that I wanted to start writing my own songs came with literally, like, touching an instrument for the first time. Yeah, like, the right. first time that I started to play around on the keyboard was when I knew, because I'd already been in a choir for a couple of years by that point. I was about seven. And yeah, it was kind of just like a hook, line, sinker moment. And then I just was addicted and I just wrote song after song after song. So, yeah. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Melbourne. I've actually lived in the same house my whole life. So inner city Melbourne, surrounded by a really wonderful music scene, which is awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, that's kind of right where the action is. So I can imagine you would have kind of been indoctrinated pretty early on getting to shows from a relatively young age. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was very fortunate in that sense, because I was surrounded by it so much. And so I think when it came to doing my own thing, it just did kind of come very naturally, which was good. Do you remember the first time that you got up on stage and performed in front of people for the first time? Uh, ooh, yeah. I mean, the first time that I would have gotten up on a stage and performed professionally was when I was in a community choir. I was in a community choir from when I was about five years old to when I was 18 called the Young Voices of Melbourne. Uh And so all of my early performance experience was based around being a little chorister child in uniform, singing songs in a very high soprano tone. Love Um, it. But it was good. It was so good for my musical education because like getting to rehearse every week meant that I learned a lot about music theory. I learned a lot about, you know, blending my voice with other voices and harmony and pitch and stuff that like I didn't know it at the time, but it would all come in handy one day when it came to recording and and composing my own music because I had that skill set to lean back on. Did you have any other bands in high school or anything like that? Yeah, I think like less so bands that it was more so vocal groups. Um, I was in a lot of of vocal groups. in, In fact, all throughout my primary and high school education like there wasn't a moment where I wasn't involved in multiple things which was just it's it's there's nothing quite like getting to it was interesting actually because I've always you know up until a couple of years ago I'd always written songs alone you know for the most part I was writing songs by myself and then when I started to co-write for my album I was like hang on the whole collaboration when it comes to creating music is something that 
I did anyway. Like in all other areas, I was in choirs and I was in vocal groups and that feeling of connection that comes with making music together is, you know, something that I rediscovered in in co-writing. And I was like, I don't know why I thought I wouldn't like this initially. It's what I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, At what point do you start performing your own stuff and kind of venturing out into what will become your solo career? Oh, I mean, songwriting was like always a hobby. I hadn't really thought about doing anything else, but I guess the age where I started to think about, you know, what could I do with these songs and how do I want people to hear them and, you know, how do I want to portray myself as an artist? I probably started having those kind of thoughts when I was 14 or 15 and I had like quite a few songs by then that I think, you know, I was often showing to my my singing teacher in high school whose name was Miriam and yeah she actually suggested one day that you know maybe it would be time to get some demos together and she knew this really wonderful producer who might be interested um, and his name was Josh Barber and Josh ended up recording my first two EPs elsewhere and here and now yeah so he's the the guy behind Drive as well and yes yeah, so yeah. we started working on my music when I was about 15. I think as soon as I was in the studio as soon as I was like doing work on production and getting to bring those songs that I'd written in my bedroom to life, that's when I started to be able to envision my artist project. So, yeah, it was when we started making Elsewhere, for sure, me and Josh. How did your relationship with performing kind of change at this point? At that age, you're still very much learning about, you know, who you are as a person, let alone who you are as a musician and being on stage and stuff like that. Was that always kind of something that came more naturally to you or was it more of a developmental process in terms of finding out the kind of persona that you would have as uh, an on-stage performer? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I think that (laughs) it's not really something that you consciously realise that there will be a bit of a, like, persona that comes with being an artist and that you will feel different on stage than you do off stage. I think that's just a discovery that... I kind of made with time, I guess. I think that when people start tuning into your project and when you suddenly have an audience, and and for me it was a case of that audience coming along pretty quickly. Like I'd been playing a lot of little small gigs and then in 2016 I won Triple J Unearthed High and with that comes a lot of exposure. And, I mean, I think it was actually for the best that I was still in school when all of that was happening because it meant that I had an excuse to be like, okay, well, I'm a little bit not ready for this and then plus I need to finish all of my schoolwork, which was something that I really, truly wanted to properly do. Yeah. And then when I graduated, I think it was the day after my final exam, I played the biggest show that I had played to like, I don't know, a couple of thousand people at Parliament Steps. Um, it was a gig for the push. And yeah, I think that... With those bigger shows came the realisation of like, okay, it's not going to feel maybe as comfortable because these bigger crowds are a little bit more daunting. You will have to be as best rehearsed as you can be. And yeah, how can I be my best performer self as an artist? And so that, yeah, it was just a time thing really. And to be honest, I feel like it's still something that I think about very deeply i i'm really mindful of being the best performer that i can be i think i have a lot of growing to do as a performer i think that it just comes with time and experience for sure what do you remember about the first tour that you did playing outside of melbourne for the first time that would have probably been oh man i guess does it, it would it still be in victoria 
The show? I mean, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, were you, were you going out regional, like Ballarat or something? I did end up doing that. We did a little regional tour of Victoria, but I feel like in terms of, like, the earlier stages, I can remember my first interstate gig very vividly in Sydney, and that was really special to be able to do that. But, yeah. I mean, outside of Melbourne, it was Falls Festival. Oh, which wow. was like yeah. not too, <laughs> It was, like, not too long after I graduated, and I was so... So nervous, and I was driving up there with my mum, and it was pouring rain. And I think, you know, me included, but like she really had not grasped what had happened with like the level of, I don't know, in terms of like how many people were listening to the song that happened to help me win Triple J Unearthed High. Like, and you know, yeah, course, also yeah. we hadn't seen it because I'd been in high school, so we didn't know. And so I think when we were driving up there, she's like, oh, maybe there'll be like a couple of people with their umbrellas, and like my self confidence is just like plummeting as she's saying this. I'm like, no one's going to come. It's raining. This is a nightmare. But then the rain stopped and I got to play the set and, yeah, it's still definitely one of the the biggest crowds that I can remember. It was very overwhelming and very surreal. Yeah. I mean, what's your relationship with that song and your earliest stuff now? Because I talked to Ben Lee recently and, you know, he's, yeah, well, he's like 41 now, Mm -hmm. maybe 42, and people still constantly talk to him about the music that he made when he was a teenager and when he was in his early Mm. 20s and all that sort of stuff. And he's in his 40s. It's like a literal lifetime away. And, you know, it's not as far away from you, but, like, Mm. there's such a rapid development in in growing up that, you know, you can look back on stuff that you did when you were 16, 17, stuff like that, and kind of have that personal kind of cringe moment. But, like, do you still, like, have a bond with those songs one way or another? Drive especially, you know? Like, it's a very classic teenage love song, but at the same time, you know, it connected with so many people and so many different uh, stages of their life, and it had that kind of universality to it. <laughs> but by that same token, it's also something you did when you were a teenager. So as someone in your 20s now, it's the it's the inherent move to just be like, oh, God, you know, that thing from when I was a kid, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I think, <laughs> I mean... I mean this in the best possible sense, but I feel like I'm just not quite at the point in my artist project when maybe those feelings would be happening yet. Because I I still feel like I'm quite young. I mean, it has been, I think someone pointed it out to me the other day, like six years, maybe five or six years since Drive came out. Drive is 2016, so five years, yeah. Yeah, that's bad. But at the same time, I okay, firstly, I, I definitely do still have a very deep connection with those earlier songs, 100%. But I maybe it was the fact that when all of that kind of happened, I was still in high school. And then I went to Nashville the following year to start working on some new music over there. I do kind of feel like in terms of how my career has just happened to unfold, playing the shows and like playing the songs, I have gotten to do it, but I've not had the experience of like, oh, let's go on the road and play like 30 shows in a row. Like, let's go and just tour and tour and tour. It's always been like the the longest stretch of shows that I have played was nine, and that was supporting Gang of Youths in North America. Yeah, right. And to be honest, in terms of the kind of artist that I hope to eventually be, you know, once this pandemic is less of a thing and touring is is more prominent again, I would love to be on the road as much as possible. Mm. And then I would feel like maybe it would get to a point where, oh, you know, people still really want to hear, maybe, but also, it's hard to imagine getting to a point where I felt like I was either disconnected from those earlier songs or just like not really wanting to play them as much because those songs are the reason that 
I get to do what I do now. And I'm so grateful for that. And I love seeing people's response when I play Drive. I can't believe that that song was so special to so many people. And I was so young when it happened. So I'm hoping that that's going to forever be the overriding feeling and that I, I don't feel like any sense of frustration with of course. people wanting to hear that music. Yeah. I guess I also ask because I've I've definitely noticed that some more of your more recent material, like you said, you've been opened up to co-writers and much more of a focus on pop and like the production side of things definitely mm. does feel like a separate entity to what you were doing on those earlier EPs. And I was wondering if that was kind of an intentional thing, like an overarching concern of potentially being put in this holding pattern creatively of just like people expecting a certain sound from you you're still figuring out yourself yeah it's an interesting question that has layers to it okay so first of all it definitely was intentional the genre shift i think that the interesting thing about writing a song like drive was that you know there were a lot of things within that particular composition that fell into a pop space whether it was like the way of the kind of ascending chord structure happened, whether it was how often the major chord, like how often we made that return, the structure of it being very like verse, pre-chorus, chorus, you know, standard, but also the repetition in the melody in the chorus. Like I definitely think formula-wise, I was probably more so headed in a pop direction than I realized at the time. But because I really love weird melodies that kind of go all over the shop and have a mind of their own like I've probably felt like that was the reason for me to stay in a more alternative indie space or whatever words you want to use like I think because I wasn't often writing what I felt to be like pop structured songs but that being said I think that when it came to writing music and and I was I was co-writing a lot for this album as I mentioned earlier one I did probably learn how to structure songs a little bit better I you know in terms because I was working with a lot of pop writers you learn how to kind of arrive at a chorus more quickly and you learn to not obsess over little things because your ego is not as present in a room of co-writers as it is when you write by yourself I think anyway and then I just kind of felt like I think that I am probably writing more pop melodies and and pop songs than I realize and I love pop production so deeply yeah and though my roots are in probably more like singer songwriter adult contemporary country folk music because it's a lot of the music that I listened to growing up like you know, I I want to be able to challenge myself as a writer and I, I wanted the new music to sit in this new sonic space and yeah. I just also really wanted to, like, give in to the fact that, you know, that was how I was writing. Pop music is what I am writing right now mm. and it feels really good and it doesn't mean that, you know, I have to sacrifice much as a songwriter either. The stories are still there. The lyrics in terms of using, I, I do love to use big words and jam-pack a lot of lyrics into my songs and I don't think that the music has lost that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think people after a time, especially once they have the full record, like we'll be able to really get a sense of the fact that it's still very much my way of writing. It's just a little bit neater. Yeah, I sure. Suppose. This yeah. kind of transition also plays into the approach to performing as well because you're playing guitar less. The classic singer-songwriter thing is to be up there singing and playing guitar and, mm. you know, that's become less and less mm. of a thing, especially since you've started playing with a live band and it might yeah. seem like a small transition going from singing and playing guitar to just singing, but they're two very different mentalities when up on stage. There are very different schools of approach and performing because Mm. like with a guitar, you can hide somewhat a bit more. Whereas 
it, it can be a lot more open, but simultaneously a lot more vulnerable when you are just performing as a vocalist. Yeah. Have you found that as you've kind of progressed as a performer and found yourself, you know, playing less and less guitar? Yes, that's something that I'm only just kind of getting into um, with this new live show that I'm currently in the midst of building. Yeah. Playing these new songs, for on one hand, it doesn't really feel too out of my comfort zone because when it came to writing this record, I didn't play a lot of guitar. Right. When I did play instruments, it was built much more around the piano. But also, like for the most part, I was top lining in the session. So I wasn't usually, I didn't have an instrument at hand. Like they would, a producer that I was working with would build a track and I would write on top of that. So in that sense, it feels much more true to the record to not be playing the instruments because that's not necessarily how we built the songs this time around. In terms of me as a performer, like I've grown up watching a lot of incredible performers, whether it be local artists here or bigger artists in stadiums that I just like can't take my eyes off. I'm so in awe of like how some of them can move and sing so well at the same time, you know, and I have found that particularly in pop music and particularly in pop women, like so exciting yeah. and so inspiring. And it's been really rewarding for me to be able to start exploring how I can focus much more on my stage presence, connection with the crowd when eventually we have a crowd yeah, <laughs> again. Yeah. Um, and just also focusing on my vocals because the vocals, like for me, that's the most important part of my project. I mean, I've been training as a vocalist since I was five. And so I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself to meet a certain standard in terms of how well I can sing and perform live. So there's, as I said earlier, there's so much for me to learn in that world. I'm definitely not one of those freaky performers that can jump around and sound perfect as yeah. a vocalist. There are people who like do no training and then just have that skill. And I do not have that. When I am <laughs> nervous or puffed out, it's very, very noticeable. And my songs do not offer a lot of breathing room in how I've written them. <laughs> so it gives me another layer of challenge. But to be honest, I think it's just more exciting for me because getting to rehearse again and and not have, you know, lockdown restrictions and be able to be in a room with my band again and spend hours and hours on these new songs has reminded me that A, my job's not Instagram. Hallelujah. It's actually being a singer and yeah. a performer. Yeah. Wonderful. But also when you spend time rehearsing and rehearsing and practicing and practicing, you start to see progress. You start to feel that you are a little bit more capable than you were the day before. And I think maybe that's why I am just so excited for hopefully the time when it comes of being able to play more shows yeah. more consistently again, because I think that feeling myself getting better as a performer is something that I find to be really exciting because I want to see how far I can push myself. Absolutely. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but there Which you is go. what we're after. <laughs> no, touching on, uh, <laughs> I, I guess, seeing other female performers and kind of being motivated and inspired by that, I can imagine being part of the Electric Lady Tour would have been a very fundamental part of, of developing yeah. that sense of performing, like watching a lot of artists that had, you know, kind of been around for a bit longer than you had at that point. Like you were relative in yeah. a state of relative infancy in terms of performing at that <laughs> point. So 100%. That was a very special, busy time in my life when we were playing those shows. Some pretty hectic things happened at those gigs as well. Like there was... Okay, someone got a literal haircut on stage at the Melbourne Corner Hotel oh, I remember show. That. Like one of yeah. the, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah I think so it was someone racket. got their head shaved. Yeah. Yeah, unreal. And also like I just remember there being something really cool that happened with Beck Sandridge when she was playing like I don't even know if it was intentional, but I remember there being some like hectic 
performance related moment. I want I I don't want to I'm feeling like maybe she might have fallen over when she was dancing or something so right. maybe it was entirely intentional I can't recall but in terms of that sense of just like there's exciting stuff there's alluring stuff happening up on the stage right now that's yeah. making everyone be like oh my gosh what's going on of course that is like the most inspiring thing to be around as someone who is new to the industry and also they're just a bunch of like really lovely down to earth incredible women Absolutely. and I loved hanging out with them yeah for sure. I wanted to touch on whether your approach to performing changes depending on the context so we've touched a little bit on some of the supports that you've done so this electric lady run mm-hmm. the American tour support of Gang of Youths. I know you've opened for Paul Kelly as well. Playing to audiences that aren't inherently your own as opposed Mm. to a quote-unquote Greta Ray show where people are coming and knowing that it's you and knowing your songs and stuff like that. Does your approach to performing change under the context that it's in, knowing that you're going to be going out there for a headlining show and people will more than likely know the songs as opposed to one of these support slots for Gang of Youths or Paul Kelly or whoever else where there's a very strong chance that a portion of that crowd at the very Mm. least will have no context for you and not know Mm. who you are, not know your songs or anything like that. How does your mindset change when you're looking at shows like that? Does the way that you perform in those scenarios change contextually? Yeah, it definitely does. I think, actually, I've probably had much more of the experience of being a support act than I have a headliner. Yeah. And I think that it's really rewarding to open for bands like the ones that I have because I'm I'm such a fan of so many of those artists. Of course, like, yeah. And so I think that being able to kind of warm up the crowd and be like, you guys excited to see... Like these people, this thing happened today. We did this. Like, you know, it's so good to be on tour with them, et cetera, et cetera. And it gives them a little bit more of a sense of backstory and just like, yeah, being able to, like, I really love hyping up other artists. Like, I do it a lot on my Instagram. I love to review albums. I love to talk about other people's music very deeply. So I think that being an opening act has really, really suited me over the past couple of years. And I think that the main thing that I change in those performances is not talking too deeply about what my songs are about, whereas Mm. the headline shows are a chance for me to be able to tell my story. And I can touch on those things a little bit, but it's also just getting a sense of what the crowd is up for. If a crowd's maybe not listening as much as they want because they're waiting for the headline act to come out, then you just yeah, don't yeah. talk as much. You focus on playing the music. Particularly when I was on tour with Gang of Youths in North America, I was so struck by those audiences and how well they listened, which was not something that I was expecting. I was like, this is a rock show. I'm here with my acoustic guitar and my little keyboard. Like, I don't know who's going to listen. Maybe like a yeah. few people per show. And that just was so the opposite of what happened. Like everyone made me feel so welcome. The first show was in Nashville and everyone that I had like known in Nashville from years beforehand, like every single person came and the Mm. amount of respect for live music over there just blew my mind. And so I think it is a little bit on one hand about just getting a feeling the energy of the crowd and, and what they kind of want from you and don't want from you. Also just respecting the fact that like it's so good that you have the opportunity to open for that band that you're opening for. When you're young, I feel like everyone has a very kind of idealistic impression of like what being a musician is like and what being in a band is like, etc. Mm. You know, because we're raised on like rock biopics and like almost famous yeah. and like all these, you know, very like highly exaggerated mm. moments. And there's always those moments in like those VH1s or anything like that where it's just like, and this is where the artist had made it, quote unquote. This very kind of <laughs> Triton 
idealistic thing where, mm. you know, like something will happen in their career. They'll get to play a certain place or something will happen with their music. And, mm. you know, it, it can be kind of hokey or whatever, but I feel like deep down every musician one way or another has those moments for themselves, whether it's getting to play a certain venue, play with a certain artist, play a certain city or anything mm. like that. And I don't know, looking back at your career, are there any kind of moments particularly where it's just like if the kid that started out singing knew that what they were doing then would eventually lead to this, they wouldn't believe you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes. I love those moments so deeply. And I always think about it in that context of like, imagine if I could go back in time and tell my little self who was writing songs in her bedroom, like where you were going to be. Yeah. The first that I remember really vividly because I got really emotional and it was super embarrassing because I was like mid-song was St Kilda Fest in like 2017. It Mm -hmm. was in February and again, really new to live shows. It was the first time that I had had... Because that's not a festival where it's like people are waiting necessarily. Like that was... People can come and go. You know, there's lots of stages. So knowing that that many people had voluntarily come out to see my set was incredible and then when I looked out into the crowd and they were all singing that song and it was the first crowd that I'd seen where I couldn't see the end and I remember when that like hit me I was like oh my god I don't know where it is and I like I just got I just started crying as soon as I like clocked that I just just like totally lost it and there's like footage of it somewhere and it's awful anyway singing uh Mumford and Sons song forever with them I mean I did that quite a bit when we toured together like I would often come out and sing that song but we got to sing it in London which is, you know, pretty amazing because that's yeah. where they're based a lot of the time. Yeah. They were headlining this festival called All Points East, which was like a massive festival. And I'd played earlier in the day. And then I got to jump on stage and sing right at the very end of the like catwalk part of the stage. So I got to like walk down the thing. And I was like, ah, I got to walk down. Yeah, anyway, mm. <laughs> getting to say, there was, I don't know how many people there would have been. And then after that, I got to sing with. Them, Dermot Kennedy, The Staves, Leanne Le Harvest, wow. Jack Garrett was playing guitar. Like there was a whole crew of us up on stage. And I was. That's incredible. I, yeah. If you find any footage from that, you'll notice I'm laughing the whole time because I'm like, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. This is so yeah. dumb. And I, all I could think about in that moment was the fact that like so many of those artists I had listened to when I was in high school. Yeah. And I was like, why am I, why, yeah. why? <laughs> like, why am I included in this yeah, lineup? You start um, to feel like a fan got pulled up on stage or something. <laughs> totally. And Jade Bird was there. And also I love Leanne so much. She's like, incredible, right? So much. Yeah. And she has just been so supportive of me, like, ever since I opened for her when she was touring with Coldplay in Australia. Oh, wow, yeah. And she, like, I remember we were singing a Beatles song and we were just, like, looking each other in the eyes and I was like, what's happening? Anyway, so probably that was, like, a pretty awesome... That was a great day. That's beautiful. I love that. (laughs) Do you feel like your motivation to continue to write and make music and perform is the same as it was when you were first starting out writing and making your own music in the first place? Or do you feel like it too has shifted contextually as you've gotten older? Is there a different motivation behind making music now as opposed to when you were writing Drive and your first EP Mm. and all that sort of stuff? It's definitely like increased like times a hundred, times a thousand. I'm a lot more motivated than I used to be. Right, yeah. I mean, I've always been passionate about writing music I've always been a very avid music listener and that hasn't changed but 
in terms of my work ethic, it's 100%. I think once you get into the industry as well, there are a lot of discoveries just in terms of the fact that it's not a job you can just afford to swan around in. Like this is going to be, and especially right now, obviously, because Mm. we've had to suffer through this pandemic and, you know, it's, it's taken a real toll on the arts. And I think when I was a little bit younger, and this makes sense because I was a literal kid, but just like when things happened and there was initial exposure, it was all very exciting and I was super grateful. But in terms of like, okay, we need to keep going now. You need to make sure you're eating well, you're getting enough sleep, you're not like, I don't know, kind of being out and singing with your friends loud in the house the night beforehand that like if you've got a gig the next day like you need to rest your voice like all of these little tiny things that now obviously are just like second nature to me it's like okay well I've got this really important thing coming up I need to make sure I'm 100% well rested I'm taking care of myself and they're not things that I think arrive naturally they're things that you have to Mm. experience the bad to know i'm not going to make that mistake again being on tour with japanese wallpaper one of the shows we played i ate a curry right before we went on stage (laughs) what the hell like what oh no so terrible so bad so like just little things like that Uh, like i think make it's just learning lessons and that contributes to your responsibility as an artist and yeah, and, and sure. making sure your project is at the best that it can be and so i definitely feel like yeah i'm a lot more focused and a lot more driven and, and definitely much more hardworking than i used to be which is good and i just want to continue to to grow and push myself as hard as i can because like this is this is all i've wanted to do since i was little and i feel like i owe it to myself as a kid to do whatever I can to get where I want to go. Damn right. <laughs> all right, we will wrap it up here. But before we do that, I ask this of all of my guests, and now it is your turn, Greta Ray. I want to know about the best and the worst shows that you have ever played. Ooh. Best show that I've ever played would have probably been, I think I have to say, opening for Mumford & Sons, just because I, I didn't expect... Often I was opening for them in arenas, just me and my guitar. Yeah. And I didn't expect to feel comfortable in those ridiculously large environments. And I think Mm. that it really shocked me how good I felt when I was up there and how I still felt like I could really connect with the audience, even though they were much further away from me and that there was more people. Mm -hmm. So probably that, in terms of like the worst gig I've played... I feel like maybe it would have been gigs that I played when I was a little bit younger and no one was listening, maybe. Yeah. Those kind of experiences where you have to just find, oh, you know what's a tough gig? I can't categorize it as the worst gig that I've ever played, but one that I remember kind of going on stage maybe with an expectation and then being like, oh, actually, this is a little bit of a challenge and I just have to navigate it. Something that's a little bit of a, I found to be a little bit hard was the Australian Open, particularly like the the second year. The first year was really great. The second time that I played that, it was really hot. It was really, really hot. I mean, it was hot both years, but it was particularly boiling. And not only was that impacting my performance, but also the audience. They've been out seeing tennis. A lot of them don't come to see you. They come because, like, that's a part of the whole Australian Open Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. They're, they don't know you. They sit down. They're exhausted and boiling. And so the energy, there's just not really – you're not getting a lot from the audience. Yeah. And, so, and they're also – you're up on a bigger stage, so you can't really – you don't feel close to them either. So I think, for me, I remember kind of – kind of 
getting onto the stage with all this energy and then going, oh my gosh, all of us are so boiling <laughs> and just like panicking. I'm like, I don't really know what oh, I'm going to no. do with this. But, you know, it's it's really just something that you have to learn to work around temperature on stage, being boiling hot and freezing cold. And it's such a mindset thing. Yeah, and finding totally. people in the audience who actually do have the energy and they know you, even if it's just like a few people, you're like, I'm just going to perform directly to them yeah. and I'm going to use them. Because the crowd is so important in terms of like they feed you yeah and you kind of feed it back to them and it's this collaboration throughout the show of like where the energy levels are sitting and so yeah that wasn't I, I can't say that it was like the worst it was not a disaster but it was definitely an unexpected challenge of course that particular show yeah definitely yeah. Greta you have an album I have an album I do it's 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 <laughs> it's not here yet but it's coming <laughs> it's coming it's so close We're, yeah it's next month Unreal. What's it called? It's called Begin to Look Around. It has 15 songs. It's, again, kind of inevitable. It's a coming-of-age record. Mm -hmm. I started writing it when I was 19, and I finished writing it when I was 21. And it kind of just tells a story of the fact that this period in my life and, and those couple of years when I was writing the record, it's a very naturally formative time. Mm -hmm. And you change your mind about a lot of things. You learn a lot about yourself and relationships and friendships and I was fortunate enough to be able to get to travel a lot because of work but also because you know you're just out of high school I got to travel with my girlfriends as well so mm. it's very much I, I really hope that the record makes people feel like they're out in the world finding themselves I know that's very cliche but it is very much what was happening when I was writing the album of course, and yeah. I think it starts in one mindset and then you can hear that there have been a lot of lessons learned along the way when you reach the end of the track list. So, yeah, it's a bit about the album. Perfect. Can't wait to hear it. Greta, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me and thank you for your wonderful questions. That's very kind. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Thanks. I'm David James Young and all my friends are involved.